welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we are talking about science and things in the news and yeah. So, um, as I always like to say before we get too far in, you can find me throughout the week on Facebook at Evidence-Based Radio. And you can find past episodes of the show at evidencebasederata.com. And um, eventually, I will get back to writing essays there. Um, it's aspirational at this point, unfortunately. But tonight, we're going to do uh, something slightly different. We're going to do a show that is roughly divided in half. So for the first half, I want to talk about the eclipse that's coming up on Monday and about stories related to various eclipses. And then for the second half of the show, I'd like to switch gears and talk a bit about the real issue of the day, which is, of course, racism and anti-Semitism and what on earth is wrong with our country? Um, and so my degree is actually in history, but I feel that there's a lot more use for a show about science these days. Um, and I do love science and I've spent years trying to understand it from the best of a lay person's ability. And I really feel that it's important to try and share that with people, which is why I have a science show and not a history show. Now, of course, you might have noticed, if you are a regular listener, that I like to talk about archaeology a fair amount. And that is obviously, uh, now that you know this, or if you, you may have already known this, but that is kind of the confluence of my two passions, uh, science and history. So archaeology is always has a special place in my heart. Um, so please do bear with me as I do a bit of explaining about how we got to where we are today as a lead-in to tonight's civil politics, um, which I can only assume will have lots to say about the current political climate, about what has happened in the last few days, and I'm sure they will not disappoint, so please do stay tuned after this show to hear from them. Okay, but this is a science-based show, so let's definitely talk about some science. And so let us talk about the eclipse. Now, the first thing I am going to say is, it's the first and the last thing I'm going to say, is please be responsible if you are going to watch the eclipse and either use approved eclipse glasses or a method of indirectly watching the event, such as using a pinhole projector. And I've shared a wired science video to the Facebook page. Um, so there is great advice there of how to view the eclipse. Um, and please, 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 I'll talk a little bit later about how serious this is um, and how serious I am in trying to, to give you the advice to please do not, do not, do not look at the sun with your naked eyes, even with a pair of regular old sunglasses. It's just not... Just don't do it. Um, and so obviously we won't be seeing a full eclipse, but a partial eclipse is still a very cool thing to experience. And so far it looks like the weather is going to be okay for this area. Um, you know, unfortunately it's the weather, so it is 
uh, subject to change at any time. But right now, it should be nice and sunny on Monday, and so we should be able to see it, which will be very exciting. Um, and in fact, uh, I will definitely be seeing it. Um, the One of the nice people... Um, where I work has gone around and given people some glasses to be able to go out and watch it. So uh, we'll have to share because the glasses are in short supply at this point. Uh, so if you don't already have glasses, you're probably going to have to use an indirect method of looking. Uh, but I am very excited and looking forward to it definitely. So definitely go out and share in that moment of fun of the universe doing cool things, the solar system, something that is above and beyond the earth right now. I think that it would do all of us a little bit of good. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe in a soul necessarily, but you know, it is the old adage that it does a soul. It'll be good for your soul. <laughs> so anyways, now what I wanted to talk about first is that eclipses have not always been so highly anticipated. We have ample historic and ethnographic information from a variety of cultures that gives us a pretty good idea of how people respond to these things worldwide, said astronomer E.C. Krupp, director of the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, in an interview with Live Science. Now, Griffith Observatory is the extremely famous uh, observatory in Los Angeles. It's been in tons of movies, none of which I can recall specifically offhand. Um, I know at least one Hitchcock movie uh, had filming at Griffith Observatory, um, and it is the most visited observatory in the country, apparently. Um, it might even be in the world. So it's a pretty cool place. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go there, I would obviously recommend it. So for Asian people, the idea that the sun could be seemingly swallowed up in the middle of the day was a pretty scary prospect. And in fact, they often associated it with supernatural disasters because the sun and moon were often considered to be actual deities. Many ancient tales of eclipses involved a supernatural beast actually consuming the sun. And in fact, the Mandarin words for eclipses come from the root word shi, which means to eat, according to Krupp. And, of course, it depended on where you were, what kind of animal was devouring the sun. Um, and so I believe in China it tended to be dogs. Um, and, of course, in the article they pointed out the very famous uh, wolves of Norse mythology who chased both the sun and the moon and an eclipse was any time that the wolf, one of the wolves managed to actually catch up to uh, the sun or moon and try and eat it. So um, Krupp notes that the sky is this zone that is out of reach yet visible to all and occupied by what appear to be powerful and therefore supernatural beings of one sort or another. Now, the sun comes up every day and goes down every day. 
while the moon each month goes through these very familiar phases. But then, in the case of an eclipse, the unexpected happens for no good reason, and the sun goes black, which is the exact opposite of what it should be doing, he went on. Now, in Mayan lore, the sun was devoured by star demons, which were illustrated as giant snakes or insects, but which actually represented the planets such as Mercury or Venus that were briefly visible during the eclipse. Um, and of course, you know that the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas, they were all very much into um, astronomy. Uh, they were all very good astronomers. Um, the Mayan calendar uh, that everybody went crazy over a couple of years ago. More than a couple of years ago now. Goodness. Um, uh they were very much into understanding how the stars and planets and everything worked. And so um, to have the ability to see these things during the eclipse would have been very cool to them and also potentially terrifying. <laughs> what they were referring to was the appearance of the planets when the sky grows dark enough in an eclipse for those objects to appear. Suddenly, something that shouldn't be there is there, usually in the vicinity of the sun. And so some of those people in central Mexico assigned the responsibility to the planets. In many cultures, there was an idea that action had to be taken in order to restore order to the universe and to bring back the sun. Some cultures shot arrows, uh, sometimes flaming arrows thought to help rekindle the sun, um, some would shoot guns once guns were available at the sky in order to scare away the beast devouring the sun. Others felt that making as much noise as possible would help. There are historic accounts of this tradition being maintained in ancient Mesopotamia, where the trouble was said to be a demon. Crypt notes. And the priests would parade around and make noise with the intent of disturbing and scaring off this predator. And in fact, this particular tradition is still observed in some parts of South America and Asian, as well as at Griffith Observatory itself. <laughs> you will be happy to know that here at the Griffith Observatory, we do exactly the same thing. We observe it, and when we get to the height of the eclipse, we know that we have a responsibility to make sure that the sun or the moon comes back. And so there's a crew of us who get out there banging on pots and pans and doing our job. Of course, they do it in good fun rather than because they're really worried that the sun or the moon won't come back. Um, but there have also been other uh, responses to eclipses. And so there are definitely some people for whom an eclipse is really nothing. Um, so it's certainly not universal. And some uh, ancient people definitely would have thought that eclipses were just really cool and not uh, anything to worry about. So obviously, we can't paint all people with a broad brush. And we don't want to say, you know, oh, those silly primitives who were worried that, you know, the sun would never come back. Um, you have to remember that obviously this doesn't happen very often. Uh, and in fact, it's been 90 years since there was a total eclipse 
uh, here in America. And so that's a long time. And so if you have people who have never seen an eclipse before, that can be really scary. Um, and so, yeah, but again, not everyone, uh, thought about this in the same way. So continuing in this vein of ancient responses to eclipses, in 1992, J. McKim Malville, a University of Colorado Boulder professor emeritus, an expert in archaeoastronomy, and W. James Judge, then a professor of anthropology at Fort Lewis College in Colorado, found a petroglyph in Chaco Canyon, which clearly depicts a full solar eclipse. The disk of the sun is surrounded but by what almost seem like octopus uh, tentacles, but which represent the coronal discharges visible during a total eclipse. And in fact, it shows clear evidence of a CME, or coronal mass ejection, a giant eruption of plasma from the surface of the sun. The petroglyph is located among several others on a large boulder called Piedra del Sol, which is located near the ancient ruins of the Chacoans. And um, the Chacoans were early members of what would uh, later be known as the Pueblo people. And so they lived in this area between around 900 and 1150 uh, CE. And so in 2014, Malville, along with Professor Jose Vaquero of the University of Extremadura in Cáceres, Spain, and I am so sorry for my terrible pronunciation, as always, uh, they published a study in the Journal of Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry that describes the discovery of the petroglyph and the evidence that they had gathered that the sun would have been in solar maximum at that period and thus would definitely have had the distinctive ejections seen in the petroglyph. And so they came at this from many different directions. This is very cool. Uh, they looked at data from ancient tree rings, which showed reduced amounts of carbon-14, which is actually what would have been expected for a time when the sun was preventing cosmic rays from reaching the Earth. So if you have less cosmic rays coming in, you have less radioactive carbon being um, taken up by the trees. They also found ancient Chinese texts, which chronicled naked eye observations of sunspots, and historical data from Europe on the annual number of auroral nights uh, during the period. So, you know, how many times did the aurora show up? Where did it show up? Um, because obviously when the sun is more active, you get more auroras and they come further down um, into uh, lower latitudes. And so everything lined up to suggest that the eclipse, which would have occurred on July 11th, 1097, yes, they can pinpoint it to the actual day, um, was one depicted in the petroglyph. And so Malville believes that for the Chacoans, the eclipse was more likely met with awe and interest rather than fear, as some other civilizations did. There is the possibility that the glory of that experience for the people living in Chaco in 1097 was transformed to an increased reverence for or an increased appreciation of the sun. Now, he suggests this because after 1100, the people built 10 large houses. 
all of which are in areas that provided dramatic views of the rising or setting sun at the winter or summer solstices, um, which is a pretty good indication that they were uh, trying to have a relationship with the sun in some way. Um, so very, very cool. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and talk about sort of more sciencey stuff um, related to the eclipse. So in both ancient and modern times, solstices have been used for science. Um, and of course, some of that science has been good and has been uh, proven over the years. Some of it's actually been not so good and eventually uh, or not so eventually overturned. Now, around 150 BCE, uh, Hipparchus of Nicaea used trigonometry to estimate the distance between the Earth and the Moon using a solar eclipse. So he found that in uh, Turkey, uh, the eclipse was going to be a total eclipse, while in Egypt, it was only going to be a partial eclipse. And so he used those two points and uh, some again, some trigonometry, and he came up with an estimation for how far away the Earth was. I'm sorry, the moon was from the Earth. Now, his calculations were off by around 20%, but for someone trying to do this in 150 BCE, that's still a pretty good estimate. Um, it represents a pretty good scientific uh, idea and is very interesting that they were really trying to figure out these amazing um, things so far back with so little. I mean, he might have had a, a really primitive ast um, astrolab, but that's about it. Um, and so even more famous astronomers like Johannes Kepler, for instance, were occasionally fooled. He actually believed that the aura was, the aura that you can see um, around the eclipse was diffused through the moon's atmosphere. Now, of course, we know now that the moon has very little atmosphere and that the aura is actually eruptions from the sun's corona. Now, eclipses have also helped with discovering elements. In 1868, Pierre Jules Caesar Janssen found an unknown line in the yellow portion of a uh, spectrograph, which turned out to be helium. So back in the old days, you couldn't just look at a eclipse much the way you can't look at an eclipse today. So what they would often do is use a spectroscope, which takes the light from the eclipse and um, or from the sun, and it breaks it into the component um, spec um, spectrum. And so you get all of the lines. And then obviously, um, if you know a lot about, or if you know fairly <laughs> just a little bit about astronomy, you'll often hear about uh, spectrographs. It's a really important tool used in astronomy. And so you look at the spectrum and you'll see little lines in it. And that indicates what elements are in that star. And so that was how it, in 1868, he discovered helium, which until that point had been unknown. Um, now, of course, this wasn't a foolproof method because 
uh, as I know, it sort of goes back and forth. In 1869, two American astronomers separately observed a line in the spectrograph in the green section of uh, the spectrum, which they thought was a new substance and which they called coronium. Unfortunately, in the 1930s, it was found to simply have been iron at extremely high temperatures. Famous astronomers Maria Mitchell and James Craig Watson of Next Generation Space Telescope Awesome fame, um, along with Thomas Edison, attempted to use the 1879 eclipse to see the planet Vulcan. Now you may be asking yourself, Vulcan? I've never heard of such a planet. And that is, of course, because Vulcan is not a planet. It's not there. Vulcan had been hypothesized to be the answer to Mercury's odd orbit, which was later determined to be caused by warped space-time. And of course, warped space-time is part of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which also had a bit or more than a bit of help from an eclipse. In 1919, Einstein wasn't all that well known until astrophysicist Arthur Eddington took pictures of a star cluster in the region of the sun during an eclipse, which proved Einstein's theory that an object's gravitational field would warp light coming towards the observer at twice the amount predicted by Newtonian physics. And so this simple experiment was actually what catapulted Einstein into the popular zeitgeist and made his theory of relativity basically a household name. And so he definitely uh, had a lot to uh, owe that eclipse and Arthur Eddington, but you know. <laughs> Nowadays, scientists are using eclipses to learn more about gravity waves and why the corona gets so hot. It's actually a huge mystery as to why the corona is hundreds of times hotter than the surface of the sun. We still don't have any idea why that is. Oh, and um, because this confused me, I definitely want to, uh, when I first read it, definitely want to um, note this. Gravity waves should not be confused with gravitational waves. Gravity waves are disturbances in the Earth's atmosphere caused by the moon's shadow cooling the air in its path. Gravitational waves are, of course, the latest breakthrough in proving relativity and, uh, you know, basically how the universe works. And those are formed when two massive objects such as black holes come close enough to one another to form ripples in the very fabric of space-time. And that's what we're trying to detect right now with LIGO and all of these amazing uh, detectors. Now, uh, so they're also going to be, for the corona um, experiment, there are going to be three planes going through the path of totality that NASA has uh, set up to do an experiment, and hopefully that's going to work out. And so they will be able to have to get some data and maybe we can get a little step closer to understanding that because, again, we literally have no idea. <laughs> um, obviously, there are probably some pretty good hypotheses, but no specific uh, understanding right now. Okay, so before we stop talking about the eclipse, I want to once again <laughs> drill into you 
that if you're going to view the eclipse, do so safely, either using glasses or viewing it indirectly. Louis Tomasowski of Portland, Oregon, has been warning people that a mere 20 seconds of watching the eclipse with a bare eye back in 1963 left him with a permanent blind spot. This is because the rays of the sun, focused by your lenses, actually create a hole in the retina. And because the damage occurs in the fovea, a spot in the retina that is responsible for sharp central vision, damage to the area can leave patients with either blurry vision or a central blind spot in their eye, according to the American Academy of Ophthalmology. It looks like someone took a hole punch and just punched out the photoreceptive cells in the retina, Dr. Russell Van Gelder, a clinical spokesman for the AAO, said. Tomasowski notes that every time we go to an eye doctor now for an exam, they dilate your eyes and look in there. The first thing they say is, you looked at a solar eclipse sometimes in your life. So be safe. (laughs) Um... And um, with that, we are going to take a little break and then we are going to switch gears and uh, talk about some less good and interesting things just because I think that it's important not to speak out um, and not to talk about this. So hang on for just a few moments. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services 
and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English, maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross-cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15-minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We're the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. Okay, we are back. So, let us talk about the elephant in the room. Now, many of us have been saying this is, quote-unquote, not us. Feeling that America is better than screaming racists, anti-Semites, and modern American Nazis, which are pretty much all the same thing. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't necessarily believe that's true as someone who's read a fair amount of history, uh, some of it the kind of history that isn't taught in a history class in the local high school. And so I think that it does us well to sort of remember about some of these things. And so Americans, one of the things that I think is most important to uh, talk about is obviously the Civil War, because that is clearly the place where our beliefs about the nation diverge for a lot of people. Americans, especially, obviously, white Americans, uh, though not just them, not singling out white Americans, and obviously I am a white American, so uh, I definitely count myself amongst some of these things, uh, though I try and rise above them. Uh, Americans like to believe that the North won the Civil War. It's an extremely convenient lie. The North won the battles. They forced the South to come back into the Union. But if you look at the history of our nation, it's the South that really won pretty much everything. For me, I think that the failure of Reconstruction is where a lot of what we think about our country today pivots. Most people who think America is better than this don't realize just how much the failure of Reconstruction affected the psyche of the country. Southerners weren't made to learn any lessons from the war. 
they weren't treated as defeated enemies for more than a cursory moment. The South traded in chattel slavery for Jim Crow, for sunset towns, for separate but equal. And yet, they also nurtured a belief that even though they continued to be able to treat African Americans and other minorities almost as badly, if not just as badly as they did before the Civil War, that they had in fact been wronged and defeated, that the North had forced them into accepting things that they would have otherwise never have accepted. So many people in this country believe not only that the South was unfairly crushed under the boot of the Northern Federalists, but also never stopped believing that African Americans and other minorities are less than human. As the years went by, many Southerners and Southern sympathizers, which can be found in all 50 states, got better at hiding their beliefs, but they didn't give them up. They whispered states' rights when they really meant the right to be slave owners. They pointed to the fact that the South had a genteel and rich society before the Civil War, ignoring the fact that this society was literally built on the backs of slaves. They built narrative fantasies of the noble lost cause while giving lip service to believing in the ideal in the idea of and ideals of America as a whole nation. And in the North, post-Reconstruction migrations of Blacks into the Northern industrial cities created a backlash of another kind, an echo of today's nativists who complain about quote-unquote foreigners taking our jobs. All this while strides to create a society in which African Americans were integrated into society, where they were allowed to form communities and be productive members of society, were often literally burned to the ground by angry whites. Have you ever heard of Greenwood? It was an area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was dubbed the Black Wall Street because several of the people who lived there were very prominent African-American uh, entrepreneurs and teachers and uh, preachers and things like that, lawyers, doctors. It was burned to the ground in the summer of 1921 by a mob of angry white people. Have you ever heard of the town of Rosewood, Florida? This was another thriving black town burned by whites in 1923. The reason? A rumor that a black drifter had assaulted and possibly raped a white woman. No one was ever charged with any crime in, in connection with the destruction of this entire town, which was never, ever rebuilt. The people were never, ever to reform that community that was lost. Have you ever heard of the race riots in Atlanta in 1906, Washington, D.C., Knoxville, Tennessee, and Chicago in 1919? I could go on, but I want to finish up with one example that I think is illustrative of the whole of how Americans forget or ignore the true history of race relations in America. One more question. 
Did you know that part of Central Park was once a thriving community called Seneca Village? Seneca Village was established in 1825 when African-American New Yorkers, who were free men and women of means, began to buy land in Manhattan, which at the time was actually a remote location, allowing them to buy parcels of land rather cheaply. The African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, described at the time as, quote, the largest and wealthiest church of colored people in this city, perhaps in the country, also established itself in Seneca Village, and within a few years, the site became a thriving community of over 250 working-class people. Between a half and two-thirds of the properties were owned by African Americans. The rest were mostly Irish immigrants and a few German. Now, of course, at this time, owning land meant you could vote which caused concern for whites in other parts of the city. By the 1840s, the community boasted three churches and a school, Colored School Number 3, one of the few integrated schools in the city. Unfortunately, the town's fate was changed forever in 1856, when the New York legislature used the newly established law of eminent domain which, of course, as an aside, is a law with a long and fraught history, which we could take an entire hour to talk about just by itself. They used the law in order to order 1,600 people to vacate their land. While they were compensated for their property, no attempt was made to help the community reestablish itself elsewhere. And in fact, newspaper accounts praised the idea and attempted to paint the community as nothing more than a squatter's village with no true value. Now, it's true that parts of the overall parcel that eventually became Central Park, because it's a big place, were little more than that. They were squatter's villages. But Seneca Village was an actual thriving community built on the familiar New York pattern of gridded streets of tax-paying citizens. They were simply unfortunate enough to be African Americans and immigrants who were deemed to be less important than creating a park for the white citizenry to enjoy. Even in modern times, when the village's existence had been rediscovered, it took archaeologists and scholars of the Institute for the Exploration of Seneca Village History a decade of persistence in order to secure a permit to dig in the park in search of remains of the settlement. The dig centered on two areas, the yard of a resident named Nancy Moore and the home of William G. Wilson, a sexton, a sexton at a all Angels Episcopal Church, both of whom were African-American. Artifacts ranging from the bowls of clay pipes, bits of Chinese tradeware, and even a child's shoe were discovered along with buttons, stoneware, and the other usual discoveries of daily life. However, the team was also forced to fill in the holes and remove their equipment every evening seems that preserving the natural state of the park is still more important to its trustees than uncovering the past of the people who sacrificed for its creation. 
And obviously, that may sound harsh, and I'm sure that they had perfectly reasonable reasons why they thought that was a good idea. But when you really think about the fact that these people were trying to uncover the lost history of the people who sacrificed their homes and their community to build this place, it just, it's just breathtaking how upsetting it is. And of course, there's now a plaque commemorating the town. However, few people who enjoy the scenic wonders of Central Park realize the dark history of its founding. And that's the rub. People in the North were often as racist, if not more so, than some Southerners. Right here in Massachusetts, school integration was fought and in some ways is still being fought tooth and nail. Busing was an incredibly, incredibly controversial idea in Boston, and it just, it was incredibly fraught. And of course, all of this doesn't even begin to address issues with nativism and religious intolerance that this country has engaged in since its founding. It's funny because the Republican president tried to make a slippery slope argument that removing Confederate monuments would lead to the destruction of monuments to founding fathers such as Washington and Jefferson. Yes, these men were deeply flawed and do not stand up to the scrutiny of an enlightened person today. But at least they knew how to present themselves as statesmen. Washington rejected the crown of leadership after a short period and warned the country of embracing party differences and petty concerns. Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal. And even if he really only meant all white land-owning men, his words have inspired others to greater levels of enlightenment. Can the same be said for Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or even Ulysses S. Grant? Can the same be said of the current president's idol, Andrew Jackson? I think not. Could any of those men have written with any sense of honesty the words from Washington's farewell address of 1796? Let me read you just a tiny excerpt from it. The unity of government which constitutes you, one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the evidence of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But as it is easy to foresee that, from different causes and from different quarters, much pain will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in, the, in your minds the conviction of this truth, as this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously, directed." It is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. 
that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourself to think and speak of it as of the palladium of your political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discounting whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. For this you have every inducement of sympathy and interest. Citizens, by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of America, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. That is the kind of America we should aspire to. It's not the America we have now. And I'd suggest reading the entire document as it really is a good reminder on bad days of what America could be if we were but better at living up to our ideals. And so I think it is incredibly important to not allow the discourse to become about slippery slopes and about what will be next. Um, there's an amazing uh, Twitter comment that's going around where um, an African-American man whose name I'm not going to remember, I'm sorry, uh, he basically said, you know, isn't it amazing how uh, people who have these, um, you know, ideas about how if we take away these statues of Confederates, we won't be able to remember history. And, you know, it's much more pithy the way that he says it, but basically the... Uh, the punchline of his tweet is, you know, wait until they discover books. There is nothing about these statues that requires us to keep them. There is nothing about these statues that ever should have been. They should never have been placed in the first place. They were not, almost all of them were not erected after the Civil War. They were erected in two waves. The first one, as Jim Crow was being solidified and the South was, the Southern white class was reasserting itself and its dominance after the brief golden age where Reconstruction looked like it might actually do something. And then the second wave was during the civil rights era in order to thumb their noses at the idea of equality for African Americans. So the idea that these are some sort of special uh, 
important part of our history that shouldn't be ripped down is ridiculous, in my opinion. And so I absolutely salute those who are taking it into their own hands to rip down those uh, monuments to the municipalities that are having the uh, good grace and idea to do it before someone else does. Um, I applaud those people. And before we wrap up, um, I definitely want to talk about something a little different. Well, no, the same thing. Sorry, I don't mean to say different. Um, I want to talk about a different aspect of this because um, a lot of what I've been reading, there often tends to be apparently people who don't see or don't remember to note that this isn't just about racism against black people, but it's also about anti-Semitism. And so let's talk for the last five minutes about anti-Semitism in America. Hooray! Um, and so in a lot of ways, Jewish people have found a lot of success in America. Obviously, that's uncontroversial. There are a lot of very successful Jewish people in this country. Um, we could have a whole uh, another conversation about uh, the ideas of um, Zionism and things like that. That for me is a little bit wonky and um, I have definite opinions on that. But as far as, you know, people in America being Jewish and being able to be successful, sure, that's a thing. And obviously it's a lovely and amazing thing. And why on earth would anybody judge you for your religion is beyond me. Um, it's just obviously I don't agree with that in any way. But let's talk a little bit about concrete things that have happened that really remind us that it's not just about racism, that it's also about anti-Semitism. Because I think people forget that because there are so many people who are, um, you know, very prominent in the Jewish community in America. But let's go back to the Civil War, for instance. So at one point, General Grant Yes, General Grant of the Union Army, uh, not of the Confederacy, because actually the Confederates had uh, a much better relationship uh, with the Jewish people, it seems. Um, he issued Order Number 11, which expelled Jews from his military district, uh, which was uh, Tennessee and Kentucky in that area, because he believed they were illegally trading in southern cotton. And so this act was resisted by members of Congress and was eventually overturned by Lincoln. But the reason I bring it up is because it's an example of one of the oldest slurs against Jewish people, that they are opportunistic and greedy and would do anything for money. It's one of the oldest, I mean, it's, it's the like second oldest thing that people say about Jewish people. And so this was the, uh, leader of the Union Army basically saying, uh, Jews can't be trusted and I don't want them anywhere near me. <laughs> um, so that's a bit of a problem. And of course, this is just one of the first bursts of anti-Semitism. And so that is sort of what happened in American history is that there were bursts of anti-Semitism. And uh, so, for instance, uh, bringing this back to today, one of the first resurgences of the KKK in the mid-1920s can actually be directly tied to the lynching of Leo Frank. 
Leo Frank was a prominent Jewish businessman in Atlanta who, in 1915, was falsely accused and convicted of killing a worker, Mary Fagan, who worked at the pencil factory that he managed. And so he was actually uh, had been convicted and was going to be killed. And then he was given a stay of execution. And so because people were so incensed, they decided to break into the jail and uh, drag him out and lynch them himself uh, or themselves, lynch him themselves. Uh, so, yeah. And of course, they built a whole mythology about this about how, you know, these Jewish people couldn't be trusted, and that's how the KKK had its resurgence. And of course, before we leave, I can't not talk about Henry Ford. If you don't know about Henry Ford, oh boy, Henry Ford was a vicious anti-Semite who continually wrote libelous stories about Jews in his newspaper, The Dearborn Independent. He even published a four-volume set of booklets called The International Jew. And, in fact, it was translated into German in 1922 and was influential on Nazi leaders, including Baldur von Schreich, who said at the Nuremberg trial, he said, uh, I shall only in one sentence... I shall say in one sentence that these works, which had no definite anti-Semitic tendencies, but through which anti-Semitism was drawn like a red thread, the decisive anti-Semitic book, which I read at the time and the book which influenced my comrades, was Henry Ford's book, The International Jew. I read it and became anti-Semitic. In those days, this book made such a deep impression on my friends and myself because we saw in Henry Ford the representative of success also the exponent of a progressive social policy in the poverty-stricken and wretched Germany of the time. Youth looked toward America, and apart from the great benefactor Herbert Hoover, it was Henry Ford who represented America. And Henry Ford represented anti-Semitism. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a lot to uh, repent for in our history. And, of course, there is the famous example wherein we actually rejected Anne Frank's family from emigrating to America. We, they were on a boat, and we told them to go back to Europe. So, yeah, I don't know about you, but tomorrow I'm going to be in Boston, and I'm going to be lending my voice to the idea that we can be better, even though we aren't yet. Okay, that's all for tonight. Uh, we will be back to Pure Science hopefully next week. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, we won't need to do this again. And uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next.